I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Well, I have nothing to talk about, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, my week has been pretty uneventful. I had the kids here uh, the last day or so. We didn't do anything. They did their schoolwork. I did uh, my work. Uh, my daughter and I watched another Ghibli movie, but that's almost done. We only got one left. And uh, that's pretty much it. It's 70 degrees out today, and we'd never win outside. So, with that, let's just dive into uh, the next book, and let's learn a little bit about the author. This week, we're going to read Arson Plus by Samuel Dashell Hammett. He was born May 27, 1894, and died January 10, 1961. He was an American author of hard-boiled detective novels and short stories. Among the enduring characters he created are Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon, Nick and Nora Charles from uh, The Thin Man, and the Continental Op from Red Harvest and The Dane Curse, a lesser-known work. In addition to the significant influence his novels and stories had on film, Hammett is, quote, is now widely regarded as one of the finest mystery writers of all time, unquote, and is called, in his obituary in the New York Times, the Dean of Hard-Boiled School of Detective Fiction. So with that, let's dive into Arson Plus. Jim Tarr picked up the cigar, rolled across his desk, and looked at the band, bit off an end, and reached for a match. Three for a buck, he said. You must want me to break a couple of laws for you this time. I've been doing business with this fat sheriff of Sacramento County for four or five years, ever since I came to the Continental Detective Agency's San Francisco office and I had never known him to miss an opening for a sour crack. But it didn't mean anything. Wrong both times, I told him. I get them for two bits each. <laughs> and here, uh, to do you a favor instead of asking for one, the company that insured Thornborough's house thinks somebody touched it off. Uh, that's right enough. According to the fire department. They tell me the lower part of the house was uh, soaked with gasoline, but the Lord knows how they could tell. There wasn't a stick left standing. I've got McClump. Yeah, where can I? Yeah, but he hasn't found anything to get excited about yet. Yeah, what's the layabout? All I know is that there was a uh, fire. Tar leaned back in his chair and bellowed, Hey, Mac! 
The Pearl pushed buttons on his desk are ornaments, so far as he's concerned. Deputy Sheriff McHale, McClep, and uh, Macklin came to the door together, and McNabb apparently wasn't within hearing. Hey, what's the idea? The sheriff demanded of McClump. You carrying a bodyguard around with you? Yeah, the two deputies, thus informed as to whom Mac referred this time, went back to their cribbage game. You got a yeah, city slicker here to catch a firebug for us, eh? Tar told his deputy, we gotta tell him what it's all about first. McClump and I had worked together on an express robbery several months before. He's a rangy or towerhead youngster, 26 or 5, with all the nerve in the world. And most of the laziness had. Ain't the Lord good to us? He had himself draped across a chair by now, always his first objective when he first came into the room. Well, here's how she stands. This fellow Thornborough's house is a couple of miles out of town on the old country road. An old frame house. About midnight, just for last, Jeff Pringle, the nearest neighbor, a half mile or so to the east, saw a glare of the sky from over that way and phoned in the alarm. And by the time the fire wagons got there, there wasn't enough of the house left to bother about. Pringle was the first of the neighbors to get to the house, and the roof had already fallen in then. Nobody saw anything suspicious. No strangers hanging about or nothing. Thornborough's help... Yeah, just managed to save themselves. And that was all. They don't know much about what happened. They're too scared, I reckon. And they did see Thornborough at his window just before the fire got him. A fellow here in town, name of Henderson. Saw that part of it, too. He was driving home from Wayton and got to the house just before the roof caved in. The fire department people say they found signs of gasoline. The Coonses, Thornborough's help, Say they didn't have to go uh, have no gas on the place, so there you are. Thornborough have any relatives? Uh, yeah, niece in San Francisco, Miss Evelyn Towbridge. <laughs> These names are ridiculous. Uh, she was up yesterday, but there wasn't anything you could do. She couldn't tell us nothing much, so she went back home. Where are the servants now? Here in town, staying at a hotel on I Street. Uh, I told them to stick around for a few days. Thornborough owned the house? Nah. Uh-huh. Bought it from Nooning and Weed a couple of months ago. Uh, you got anything to do this morning? Uh, nothing but this. Good. Let's get out and dig around. We found the Coonses in their room at the hotel on I Street. The Coons was a small-boned, plump man with a smooth, meaningless face and the suavity of a typical male house servant. His wife was a tall, stringy woman, eh, perhaps five years older than her husband, say, eh, 40, with a mouth and chin that seemed shaped for gossiping. But he did all the talking. Well, she nodded her agreement to every second or third word. We went to work for Mr. Thorborough on the 15th of June, I think, he said, in reply to my first question. We came to Sacramento around the first of the month, but put in applications at the Alice Employment Borough. A couple of weeks later, they sent us out to see Mr. Thorborough, and he took us on. Uh, where were you before you came here? Uh, in Seattle, sir, with Mrs. Comerford. But the climate there didn't agree with my wife. Uh, she has bronchial trouble. So we decided to come to California, huh? Uh, we most likely would have stayed in Seattle, though, if Miss Comerford hadn't given up her house. Uh, what do you know about Mr. Thornborough? 
Uh, very little, sir. He was a very talkative gentleman. He hadn't any business that I know of. I think he was a retired uh, seafaring man. He never said he was, but he had that manner and look. He never went out or had anybody in to see him, except his niece once. Uh, and he didn't write or get any mail. He had a room next to his bedroom, fixed up as a sort of eh, workshop. He spent most of his time in there. I always thought he was working on some kind of invention. But he kept the door locked. He wouldn't let us go near it. Uh, haven't you any idea at all what it was? Uh, no, sir. We never heard any hammering or noises from him. He never smelled anything either. And none of his clothes were ever the least bit soiled. Even then, they were ready to go out to laundry, and they would have been in if he had been working on anything like machinery. Was he an old man? I could have been over 50, so he was very erect, <laughs> and his hair and beard were thick, with no gray hairs. Uh, ever had any trouble with him? Oh, no, sir. He was, if I may say it, a very particular gentleman, yeah, in a way. And he didn't care about anything except having his meals fixed right, having his clothes taken care of. He's uh, very particular about them. And not being disturbed. Well, that's a little clue right there, his clothes being cleaned. Uh, except early in the morning and at night, we'd hardly see him at all you know, during the day. And now about the fire. Uh, tell us everything you remember. Ah, well, sir, my wife and I had gone to bed about 10 o'clock, our, our regular time, and had gone to sleep. Our room was on the second floor, yeah, in the rear. Sometime later, I never did exactly know what time it was, I woke up uh, coughing. Ah, the room was full of smoke, and my wife was sort of eh, strangling. I jumped up and dragged her back down the stairs and out the back door. When I had her safe in the yard, I thought of Mr. Thornborough. I tried to get back in the house, but the whole first floor was just flames. I ran around front then to see if he got out. I didn't see anything of him. The whole yard was as light as day by then. And then I heard him scream. Oh, a horrible scream, sir. I can hear it yet. Uh, and I looked up at his window, and uh, that was the front second-story room. And I saw him there, trying to get out the window, exclamation point. Ah, but all the woodwork is burning. And he screamed again and fell back. Right after that, the roof over his room fell in. It wasn't a, a ladder or anything that I could have put up to the window. It wasn't anything I could have done. In the meantime, a gentleman had left his automobile in the road and come to where I was standing. If there was anything he could do. The house was burning everywhere and falling in here and there. So we went back to where I would left my wife and carried her further away from the fire and brought her to... Uh, she fainted. That's all I know about that, sir. Uh, hear any noises earlier that night or see anybody hanging around? Uh, no, sir. Have any gasoline around the place? Uh, no, sir. Mr. Thornburg didn't have a car. No gasoline for cleaning? Who uses gasoline for cleaning? No, sir, none at all. Unless Mr. Thornborough had it in his workshop, but his clothes needed cleaning, I took them to town, and all his laundry was taken by the grocer's man when he brought our provisions. Don't know anything that might have had some bearing on the fire? Uh, no, sir, I was surprised when I heard that somebody had set the house on fire. I can hardly believe it. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. Uh, what do you think of them? I asked. Clump, McClump, as we left the hotel. 
They might pad the bills or even go south with some of the silver, but they don't figure as killers in my mind. That's my opinion, too, but they were the only persons known to have been there when the fire started, except for the eh, man who died. We went around to the Alley's Employment Bureau and talked to the manager. He told us that the Kuntzes had come to his office on the June 2nd, looking for work, and had given Mrs. Edward Comford, 45 Woodmass Terrace, Seattle, Washington, as a reference, in reply to the letter, he always checked up the references of servants. Mrs. Comfort had written that the Kuntzes had been in her employ for a number of years and had been extremely satisfactory in every respect. On June 13th, 13th, <laughs> Thornborough had telephoned the Bureau asking that a man and his wife be sent out to keep house for him. And Alice sent out two couples he had listed. Neither couple had been employed by Thornborough, though Alice considered them more desirable than the Kuntzes, who were finally hired by Thornborough. Although it certainly seemed to indicate that the Kuntzes hadn't deliberately uh, maneuvered themselves into the place unless they were the luckiest people in the world. And a detective can't afford to believe in luck or coincidence unless he has unquestionable proof of it at the office of the real estate agents, neither whom Thornborough had brought to the house, Nooning and Weed. We were told that Thornborough had come in on the 11th of June and had said that he had been told that the house was for sale. He had looked it over and he wanted to know the place. The deal had been closed the next morning, and he had paid for the house with a check of 14500 on the Siemens Bank of San Francisco. The house was already furnished. After luncheon, McClump and I called on Howard Henderson, the man who had seen the fire while driving home from Wayton. He had an office in the Empire Building, with his name and title and another California agent for crispy corn crumbs on the door. He was a big, uh, careless-looking man of uh, 45 or so with a professionally jovial smile that belongs to the traveling salesman. He had been in waiting on business the day of the fire, he said, and he had stayed there until rather late, going to dinner and afterward uh, playing pool with a grocer named Hammersmith. One of his customers, he had left waiting in his machine at about 10.30, set out for Sacramento. At Lavender, he had stopped at the garage for oil and gas and to have one of his tires blown up. Just as he was about to leave the garage, uh, the garage man had called his attention to a red glare in the sky and told him that it was probably from a fire somewhere along the old country road that paralleled the state into Sacramento. So Henderson had taken the county road. And, oh, sorry, Country Road, and had arrived at the burning house just in time to see the Thornborough try to fight his way through the flames that enveloped him. It was too late uh, to make any attempt to put out the fire. Uh, the man upstairs is, uh, beyond saving by then, undoubtedly dead, even before the roof collapsed, so Henderson had helped Coons revive his wife and stayed there watching the fire until it had burned itself out. And had seen no one on that county road while driving to the fire. Uh, what do you know about Henderson? I asked. McClump, when we were on the street. Yeah, I came here from somewhere in the east, I think. Early in the summer to open up the breakfast cereal agency. It was at the Garden Hotel. Yeah, where do we go next? Uh, yeah, we get a car and, and look at what's left of the Thornborough house. 
An enterprising incendiary couldn't have found a lovelier spot in which to turn himself loose. If he looked the whole country over, tree-topped hills uh, hid it from the rest of the world on three sides, while away from the fourth, an uninhabited plain rolled down to the river. The country road that passed the front gate was shunned by automobiles, so McClump said in favor of the state highway to the north. Where the house had been was now a mound of blackened ruins. We poked around in the ashes uh, for a few minutes. Not that we expected to find anything, but because it's the nature of a man to poke around in ruins. The garage in the rear, whose interior gave no evidence of recent occupation, had a badly scorched roof uh, in front, but was otherwise undamaged. The shed behind it, sheltering an axe, a shovel, and various odds and ends of gardening tools, had escaped the fire altogether. The lawn in front of the house and the garden behind the shed about an acre at all, had been uh, pretty thoroughly cut and trampled by wagon wheels, and the feet of the firemen and the spectators. Having ruined our shoe lines, McClump and I got back in our car and swung off in a circle around the place, uh, calling at all the houses within a mile radius and getting little besides jolts for our trouble. Nearest house was that of Pringle, ugh, the man who had turned in the alarm. But he had not uh, only knew nothing about the dead man, he said he had never seen him. Uh, in fact, only one of the neighbors had ever seen him, uh, Miss Jabeen, who lived about a mile to the south. She had taken care of the key to the house while it was vacant, and a day or two before it, uh, bought it. Thorburn had come into her house inquiring about the vacant one. She had gone over there with him and showed him through it, and he uh, told her that he intended on buying it, that the price wasn't too high, he had been alone, except for the chauffeur of the hired car in which he had come from Sacramento. And, save that he had no family, he had told her nothing about himself. Hearing that he had moved in, she went over to call on him. Several days later, yeah, quote, just a neighborly visit, but had been told by Mrs. Coons that he was not at home. Most of the neighbors had talked to the Coonses and had got the impression that eh, Thornborough did not care for visitors, so they let him alone. Eh, the Coonses were described as pleasant enough to talk to when you meet them, but reflecting their employer's desire not to make friends. The clump summarized what the afternoon had taught us as we pointed our car toward the Tavender. Any of these folks could have touched off the place, eh, but we got nothing to show that any of them even knew Thornborough, let alone had a bone to pick with him. Tavender turned out to be a crossroads settlement of a general store and a post office, a garage, a uh, church, and six dwellings. About two miles from Thornborough's place, McClump knew the storekeeper and the postmaster, a scrawny little man named Philo, who uh, stuttered moistly. Uh, oh, this is really insulting, and I'm going to do it. I none never saw the Thornborough, he said. And, uh, oh God, n never had any mail from him. Cocoons. It sounded like one of those things that butterflies come out of. Used to come in once a week to, to order. <laughs> this is so bad. And didn't have a phone. He used to walk in, and I'd send the stuff over in my c c car. The then... I'd see him once in a while, waiting for, for the stage to s, -S, -S sacramento 
Who drove the stuff out of Thorboroughs? <laughs> my my, my boy. Wanted to talk to him? The boy it was a juvenile edition of the old man, but without the stutter. He had never seen Thorborough on any of his visits, but his business, his business had taken him only as far as the kitchen. He hadn't noticed anything particular about the place. Who's the nightman in the garage? I asked him. Billy Luce. I think you can catch him there now. I saw him go in a few minutes ago. We crossed the road and found Luce. Night before last, the night of the fire, down the road, there was a man talking to you when you first saw it. He turned his eyes upward in that vacant stare which people use to aid their memory. Uh, yeah, I remember now. He, he was going to town, and I told him that if he took the county road instead of the state road, he'd see the fire on his way in. Uh, what kind of looking man was he? Middle-aged and big man. That's sort of slouchy. Uh, I think he had a brown suit, baggy and wrinkled. Medium complexion? Oh, yes. Smile when he talked? Yes, a pleasant sort of fellow. Brown hair? Yeah, but he had a heart. Luce laughed. I didn't put him under a magnifying glass. <laughs> From Tavender, we drove over to Waiton. Lucci's description had fit Henderson's all right, but while we were at it, we thought he might as well check up uh, to make sure that we had been coming from Waiton. We spent exactly 25 minutes in Waiton. Ten of them finding Hammersmith, the grocer with whom Henderson had said he dined and played pool. Five minutes finding the proprietor of the pool room and ten verifying Henderson's story. Uh, what do you think of it now, Mac? I asked as we rolled back towards Sacramento. Mac's too lazy to express an opinion, or even form one, unless he's driven to it. But that doesn't mean they aren't worth listening to if you can get them. Uh, there's a hell of a lot to think, he said cheerfully. Henderson is out of it. If he ever was in it, uh, there's nothing to show that anybody but the Coonses and the Thornboroughs were there when the fire started, but uh, there may have been a regiment there. Them Coonses ain't too honest-looking. Maybe, eh, but they ain't killers, or I miss my guess. The fact remains... That they're the only bet we've got so far. Maybe we ought to try to get a line of them. All right, I agreed. As soon as we get back to town, I'll get a wire off to our Seattle office, asking them to interview Mrs. Comfort and see what she can tell about them. Then I'm going to catch a train for San Francisco and see Thurborough's niece in the morning. Next morning... At the address McClump had given me, a rather elaborate apartment building in California Street, I had to wait eh, three quarters of an hour for Mrs. Evelyn Thorbert to, uh, to dress. If I had been younger or a social caller, I suppose I have felt uh, amply rewarded when she finally came in. A tall, slender woman of less than 30, and some sort of uh, clingy black flair, with a lot of black hair over a very white face, strikingly set off by a small red mouth big hazel eyes. But I was busy, middle-aged detective who was fuming over having his time wasted, and I was a lot more interested in finding the bird who struck the match than I was in feminine beauty. However, I smothered my grouch, apologized for disturbing her at such an early hour, and got down to biznass. I want to tell you, to tell me all you know about your uncle. His family, friends, uh, enemies, business connections, everything. 
had scribbled on the back of a card I had sent to her that my business was. He hadn't any family, she said, unless I might be it. He was my mother's brother, and I am the only one of that family now living. Where is he born? Ah, here in San Francisco. I don't know the date, but he was about 50 years old, I think. Three years older than my mother. Uh, what was his business? I went to see when he was a boy, and uh, so far as I know, I always followed it until a few months ago. And the captain? Nah, I don't know. Sometimes I would see or hear from him for several months, and he never talked about what he was doing, though he would mention some of the places he had visited. Rio de Janeiro, <laughs> Madagascar, Tobago, Christiana, and then about three months ago, uh, sometime in May, he came here and told me that he was through with wandering, and he was going to take a house in some quiet place where he could work undisturbed on an invention in which he was interested. Uh... He lived in the San Francisco Hotel while he was in San Francisco. After a couple of weeks, he suddenly disappeared. And then, about a month ago, I received a telegram from him asking me to come see him at his house near Sacramento. I went up the very next day, and I thought he was acting queerly. He seemed very excited over something. He gave me a will that he had just drawn up and some life insurance policies in which I was the beneficiary. Immediately after that, uh, he insisted that I return home and hinted rather plainly that he did not wish me to either visit him again or write until I heard from him. I thought all that was rather peculiar, uh, as he had always seemed fond of me, and I never saw him again. Uh, what, was, what was the invention he was working on? I don't really know. I asked him once, uh, but he came so excited, even suspicious, that I changed the subject and never mentioned it again. Are you sure... That he really did follow the sea all those years? No, no, I'm not. I just took it for granted that he may have been doing something altogether different. Was he ever married? No, not that I know of. Do you know any of his friends or enemies? No, none. Remember anybody a name that he ever mentioned? No. I don't want you to think this next question insulting. Though I admit it is. Where were you? the night of the fire. At home! I had some friends here for dinner, and they stayed till about midnight. Mr. and Mrs. Walker Kellogg, uh, Mrs. John Dupree, and uh, Mr. Kilmer, who is a lawyer. I can give you their addresses if you want to question them. From Mrs. Trowbridge's apartment, I went to the Francisco Hotel. Thornbridge had registered there from May 10th to June 13th, and hadn't attracted much attention. He had been a tall, broad-shouldered, erect man about fifty, with rather long brown hair brushed straight back, a short, pointed brown beard, and a healthy, ruddy complexion. Grave, quiet, eh, punctilious in dress and manner. His hours had been regular, and he had no visitors that any of the hotel employees remembered. At uh, the Siemens Bank, upon which Thornborough's check in payment of the house had been drawn, I was told that he had opened an account there on May 15th having been introduced to W. W. Jeffers and Sons, local stockbrokers. A balance of a little more than $400 remained to his credit. The canceled checks on hand were all the order of various life insurance companies, and for amounts that, if they represented premiums, testified to rather large policies. I jotted down the names of the life insurance companies, and then went to the offices of W. W. Jeffers and Sons. And that's my daughter texting, so I have to answer it.
And I'm back. Thorborough had come in, I was told, on the 10th of May with $15,000 worth of bonds that he had wanted sold. During one of his conversations with Jeffers, he had asked the broker to recommend a bank, and Jeffers had given him a letter of introduction to the Siemens Bank. That was all Jeffers knew about him. He gave me the number of the bonds, but tracing bonds isn't always the easiest thing in the world. The reply to my Seattle telegram was waiting for me at the Continental Detective Agency when I arrived. Mrs. Edward Comfort rented apartment at address you gave on May 25. Give it up June 6. Trunks to San Francisco same day check numbers on 4. Five two five eight seven and eight and nine. Tracing baggage is no trick at all if you have the dates and check numbers to start with, as many a bird who is wearing somewhat uh, similar numbers on his chest and back, because he overlooked that detail when making his getaway, can tell you. And twenty-five minutes in a baggage room at the ferry, and half an hour at the office of a transfer company gave me my answer. The trunks had been delivered to Mrs. Evelyn Trowbridge's apartment! Exclamation point! I got Jim Tarr on the phone and told him about it. Good shooting, he said, forgetting for once to indulge his wit. We'll grab the Coonses here and Mrs. Trowbridge there. At the end of another mystery. Wait a minute, I cautioned him. It's all not straightened out yet. There's still a few kinks in the plot. That's straight enough for me. I'm satisfied. Yeah, yeah, the boss, but I think you're being a little hasty. I'm going up and talk with the niece again. Eh, give me a little time before you phone the police here to make the pinch. <laughs> I'll hold her till they get there. Evelyn Tolbridge, let me in this time instead of the maid who had opened the door for me in the morning. And she led me to the same room in which we had had our first talk. I let her pick out a seat, and then I selected one that was closer to either door than hers was. On the way up, I had planned a lot of innocent-sounding questions that would get her all snarled up. But after taking a good look at this woman sitting in front of me, I leaned comfortably back in my chair, coolly waiting for me to speak my piece. I discarded the trick stuff. Ah, it came out cold turkey. Ever use the name Mrs. Edward Comerford? Ah, yes, as casual as a nod on the street. When? Ah, often. You see, I happen to have been married not so long ago to Mr. Edward Comerford. So it's not really strange that I should have used the name. Uh, use it in uh, Seattle recently? Yeah, I suggest, she said sweetly, that if you are leading up to the references I gave Coons and his wife, you might save some time coming right to it. That's fair enough, I said. Let's do that. There wasn't a tone or shading in voice, manner, or expression to indicate that she was talking about anything half so serious or important uh, to her as a possibility of being charged with murder. She might have been talking about uh, the weather. During the time that Mr. Comerford and I were married, we lived in Seattle, where he still lives. After the divorce, I left Seattle and resumed my maiden name. And the Kuntzes were in our employ, as you might learn, if you care to look it up. You find my husband, or uh, former husband, at the Chelsea Apartments, I think. 
Last summer, or late spring, I decided to return to Seattle. The truth of it is that I suppose all my personal affairs will be aired anyhow, that I thought perhaps Edward and I might patch up our differences. So I went back and took an apartment on the Woodmancy Terrace, as I was known in Seattle as Mrs. Edward Comerford. And as I thought, using my name might influence him a little, I used it while I was there. Oh, also, I telephoned the Coonses to make tentative arrangements in case Edward and I should open our house again. But Coons told me that they were going to California, and I should gladly give them an excellent recommendation when, some days later, I received a letter of inquiry from an employment bureau in Sacramento. After I had been in Seattle about uh, two weeks, I changed my mind about the reconciliation. Edward's interest, I learned, was all centered elsewhere. So I returned to San Francisco. Uh, very nice, exclamation point. But if you ever permit me to finish, she interrupted. When I went to see my uncle in response to his telegram, I was surprised uh, to find the Kuntzes in his house, knowing my uncle's uh, peculiarities and finding them now increased and remembering his extreme secretiveness about his mysterious invention. I cautioned the Kuntzes not to tell him that they had been in my employ. I certainly had discharged them. Justice certainly would have quarreled with me. Uh, he would have thought that I was having him spied on. Then, when Coons telephoned me after the fire, I knew that to admit that the Coonses had been formerly in my employ would, in uh, view of the fact that I was my uncle's only heir, uh, cast suspicion on all three of us. Uh, so we foolishly agreed to say nothing and carry on with the deception. That didn't sound all wrong, but it didn't sound all right. I wish talk. Excuse me, Tar had taken it easier and let us get a better line on these people before having them thrown in the coop. The coincidence of the Coonses stumbling into my uncle's house is, I fancy, uh, too much for your detecting instances. She went on, I am to consider myself under arrest. Uh, I'm beginning to like this girl. She's a nice, cool piece of work. Hmm. Not yet, I told her, uh, but I'm afraid it's gonna happen pretty soon. She smiled a little, mocking smile at that, and another doorbell rang. It was O'Hara from police headquarters. We turned the apartment upside down and inside out, but didn't find anything of importance except for the will that she had told me about, dated July 8th, and her uncle's life insurance policies. They were all dated between May 15th and June 10th. It added up uh, to a little more than $200,000. I spent an hour uh, grilling the maid after O'Hara had taken Evelyn Tobridge away, but she didn't know any more than I did. However, between her, the janitor, the manager of the apartments, and the names Mrs. Tobridge had given me, I learned that she had really been entertaining friends on the night of the fire until after 11 o'clock anyway, and that was late enough. Half an hour later, I was riding the short line back to Sacramento. I was getting to be one of the line's best customers, and my anatomy was on bouncing terms with every bump in the road. Between bumps, I tried to fit the pieces of the Thornborough puzzle together. The niece and Coonses fit in somewhere, but not just where we had them. We had been working on the job sort of lopsided. But it was the best we could do with it. In the beginning, we had turned the Coonses and Evelyn Tobridge uh, because there was no other direction to go. And now we had something on them. 
but a good lawyer could make hash out of it. The Coonses were in the country jail when I got to Sacramento. After some questioning, they admitted their connection with the niece and had come through with some stories that matched hers. Tar, McClump, and I sat around the sheriff's desks and argued. Those yarns are fight dreams, the sheriff said. We got all three of them. Uh, as good as convicted. McClump grinned derisively at his superior and then turned to me. Eh, gone. You tell him about the holes in his little case. He ain't your boss, and you can't take it on you later for being smarter than he is. Mm -hmm. Tar glared from one of us to the other. Yeah, spill it out, you wise guys, he ordered. Our dope is, I told him, figuring that McClump's view of the, was the same as mine. That there's nothing to show that even Thornborough knew he was going to buy that house before the 10th of June, and that the Coonses were in town looking for work on the 2nd. And besides, it's only by luck they got the jobs. The employment office sent two couples out here ahead of them. It would take a chance on getting the jury figure that one out. Yes? Oh, you'll also take a chance on them figuring out that Thorborough, who seems to have been a nut, might have touched off the place himself. We got something of these people, Jim, but not enough to go into court with them. How are you going to prove that when the Coonses are planted in Thorborough's house, if you can even prove that they're planted, uh, they and the Trowbridge woman knew that he was going to load up with the insurance policies? The sheriff spat disgustedly. Yeah, you guys are the limit. You run around in circles, digging up the dope on these people until you get enough to hang them, and then you run around hunting uh, for outs. What's the matter with you now? I answered him from halfway to the door. The pieces were beginning to fit together under my skull. Gonna run some more circles. Come on, Mac. And McClump and I held a conference on the fly. And then I got in a car with the nearest garage and headed for the Tavender. Uh, we made time going out. We got there before the general store closed for the night. The stuttering Philo separated himself from the two men with whom he had been talking and followed me to the rear of the store. Yeah, do you keep an itemized list of the laundry you handle? Oh, God, it's a stuttering. And no, 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 just the amounts. Ah, let's look at the Thornboroughs. He produced a begrimed and rumpled account book. And we picked out the weekly items I wanted, 260, 310, 225, and so on. Yeah, I got the last batch of laundry here. Yeah, yes, he said. It ju just came out of the city to today. I tore open the bundle. Some sheets, pillowcases, tablecloths, towels, napkins, some yeah, yeah, feminine clothing, some shirts, <laughs> collars, underwear, and socks. That were unmistakably the Coons's. I thanked uh, Philo while uh, running back to the car. Back in Sacramento again. Nah, McClump was waiting for me at the garage where I had hired the car, registered at the hotel on June 15th, rented the office of the 16th. I think he's at the hotel now, he greeted me. We hurried around the block to the Garden Hotel. Mr. Henderson went out a minute or two ago, and the night clerk told us he seemed to be in a hurry. Uh, know where he keeps his car? In the hotel garage around the corner. We were within ten feet of the garage when Henderson's automobile shot out and turned up the street. Oh, uh, Mr. Henderson, I cried, trying to keep my voice level. He stepped on the gas and streaked away from us. Uh, Want him? McClump asked. And am I not? He stopped a passing roadster by the simple expedient of stepping in front of him. We climbed in 
The clump flashed his star at the bewildered driver and pointed out Henderson's dwindling taillight. After he had persuaded himself that he wasn't being boarded by a couple of bandits, the commandeer, the driver, did his best, and he picked up Henderson's taillight after two or three turnings and closed in on him. Though his car was going at a good clip, by the time we reached the outskirts of the city, we had crawled up to within safe shooting distance, and I sent a bullet over the fleeing man's head. Thus encouraged, he managed to get a little more speed out of his car. We were now overhauling him now. Just the wrong minute, Henderson decided to look over his shoulder at us. An unevenness on the road twisted his wheels. His machine swayed, skidded, went over on its side. Almost immediately, from the heart of the uh, tangle, came a flash ah, and a bullet moaned past my ear. Another, uh, and then, while I was still hunting for something to shoot at in the pile of junk we were drawing upon, uh, the clump, ancient and battered revolver roared in my other ear. Henderson, who was dead when we got to him. McClump's bullet had taken him over one eye. McClump spoke to me over the body. Uh, an inquisitive sort of fellow, but I hope you don't mind. Uh, tell me why I shot this lad. Because uh, he was Thornborough. He didn't say anything for about five minutes then. I reckon that's right. Uh, how'd, you, how'd you know it? We were sitting beside the wreckage now, waiting for the police that had sent our commandeered chauffeur uh, to phone for. He had to be, I said. Are you thinking all over Funny we didn't uh, hit on it before. All that stuff we were told about Thornborough had a fishy sound, whiskers, and an unknown profession, immaculate and working on a mysterious invention, very secretive, and born in San Francisco, where the fire wiped out all the old records. Just the sort of fake... That could be cooked up easily. Now consider Henderson. Ah, ah, you had told me he had come to Sacramento sometime early this morning, this summer. And the dates you got tonight show that he didn't come until after Thornborough had bought the house. All right. Now compare Henderson with the descriptions we got of Thornborough. Both are about the same size and age. Eh, with the same color hair. The differences are all things that can be manufactured. Eh, clothes. Eh, a little sunburn. And a month's growth beard, along with a little acting. It'd do the trick. Tonight I went out to Tavender and took a look at the last batch of laundry. And there wasn't any of that eh, that didn't fit the Coonses. None of the bills all the way back were large enough for Thornborough to have been as careful about his clothes as we were told he was. Eh, it must be... Great to be a detective, McClump grinned. As the police ambulance came up again, I began to scourge the policeman. I reckon somebody must have tipped Henderson off that I was asking about him this evening, and then regretfully, so we ain't going to hang them folks for murder after all. No, but we ought to have had any trouble convicting them of arson, plus eh, conspiracy to fraud, and anything else the prosecuting attorney could think of. story of a gumshoe out there solving a crime. Like a proto-Columbo. What do we learn from this? We learn that uh, my daughter will text me in the middle of a story and I have to stop and answer it. 
We also learned that, just like my intro, where I had nothing to say, the story was just as straightforward. Uh, I could kind of tell that Thorborough wasn't really dead, and uh, the Coonses were lying. Uh, it's pretty much in your face. So, I'm depressed. I haven't left the house in forever. I mean, I did. I went to the grocery store, which is, of course, terrifying. And uh, I hated every minute of it. I just want to curl up in my bed and wait for the world to go back to the way it was roughly five years ago. Wouldn't that be nice? So with that, thanks for listening. And I've been deeply thinking about this whole Conan the Barbarian thing. I'm thinking of sprouting off a whole separate podcast just for Conan the Barbarian. So, uh, you'll probably hear me heavily trying to advertise that to my nine listeners. Uh, I'm just going to go through the whole Conan the Barbarian. Why? Because I want escapism. I want muscly men to fight over stuff, and I want to read all about it. So... Uh, that's going to be my next project over this weekend and stuff. So, uh, thanks for listening. And, uh, thanks for maybe listening to the Conan podcast when I finally figure out what I'm going to do. And I will see you next week. <laughs>